Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. A mid-morning dance with the devil from the farmer of fury. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Good morning and welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We have finally made it, ladies and gentlemen. We have reached the end of 2019, something that at times seemed a near impossibility. We have crashed through several deadlines. March the 29th, April the 12th, June the 30th, October the 31st. We have survived several meaningful votes, yet another election, the replacement of the Speaker, a new Prime Minister twice, and two Queen's speeches. And guess what? It looks like we are finally leaving the European Union at the end of January. But uh, we'll bring you news on that, obviously, as we go through the course of the day here. This is the last show of 2019. Uh, They're already celebrating New Year 2020 in New Zealand. Uh, We'll be hearing from Australia where there was a bit of a row about whether they should have a fireworks display over Sydney Harbour Bridge given all of the damage that's being done right now uh, by the terrible fires and the bushfires that are raging all over the country. However, uh, they are going ahead with it. We will be going ahead with ours, of course, here as well in London at midnight tonight. Um, Coming up, we're going to be talking to Trevor Phillips, former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, on why this country has become quite so guilt-ridden and self-righteous about race. He's got a piece in the Daily Mail today. Uh, The story first emerged yesterday. We talked about it uh, on the show yesterday, where white working-class boys who were given the opportunity to go to a private school thanks to a scholarship from an eminent professor, um, the the schools basically turned it down on the grounds that they said, well, this might be discriminatory. Um, And it was a fascinating conversation. We took some great calls yesterday. We'd like to hear, of course, uh, from Trevor Phillips as well throughout the course of this morning. 0344-499-1000. Coming up a little bit later on, uh, we'll also take more of your calls on the immigration problem uh, and the social security situation here. Also, uh, we'll let you know precisely what is likely to happen if you get done for speeding in different parts of the country. It is New Year's Eve, of course. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on the fastest growing radio station in the entire world. It is, of course, Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, you might remember two stories that we discussed on the show yesterday. The first one, as I mentioned, about working-class white boys who are very, very much uh, underprivileged when it comes to their education and their progress through the world, their sort of social mobility and all of that. Also, the other story that we had yesterday was about the Lake District, where the leader of uh, of, uh, the National Park up there in the Lake District said that they weren't attracting enough diverse people to come as tourists, not only... 
uh, from different ethnic backgrounds, but also from various dis disabled communities as well. Trevor Phillips, former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, uh, has got a piece in the Daily Mail today. School's too afraid to help white boys. The lake's deemed not ethnic enough. This lunacy helps no one. Uh, Trevor, very good morning to you. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Mike. Thank you so much for joining us. I mean, I think... I, I can I can very rarely say that I read a piece of the newspaper and I agree with every single word in it, and but I do I absolutely agree with everything that you say here. We talked about it yesterday: self-righteous guilt tripping, ideological posturing. How did this happen, and when did it happen? Well, it's very kind of you to say that, Mike. Um, you're probably the only person in the world who could say that right now, because <laughs> because uh, I think people are very uh, divided and some people a bit confused about all of this. Mm. Um, when you say when did this happen i think what if you're asking if uh, if you're asking when did the what we would call the primacy of identity politics i think is the the way people talk about it mm. when did this take place well i think it's happened over a period of time and let me be absolutely clear i don't think this is a sort of terrible bad thing i think what is true one of my friends has a very good way of putting it. He says for the last 150 years, we've been obsessed by class. That's because of the way that the Industrial Revolution worked out. People work in factories and there are bosses and there are workers and so on. But for most of human history, before all of that, the things that were most important to us were family. They were clan. They were tribe. They were religion. And all that's happening now is that we're, to some extent, reverting to that. So the things that become important to us are those issues of uh, of, of religion and faith and culture that bind us together with people who are like us. And uh, I think that's ha that sort of happened again in the last 20 to 30 years here and in the United States. I, my point is that we shouldn't be constantly getting alarmed by this. What we need to do is to understand what is happening, make sure that we treat every different group fairly, and that we try to negotiate our differences in a sort of rational and generous way, rather than shouting and screaming at each other about, you know, who's got privilege and all that stuff. I think, you know, let's be human and let's be generous about these things. Yes, but we've become a very intolerant nation, I think, as well, in the sense that, you know, there is now a kind of... It's almost a religious zeal about certain political beliefs, about certain cultural beliefs, you know, and I'm talking in, about things like climate change. Um, I'm talking about the way that, say, the older people of this country are sometimes just basically kind of thrown in the, in, uh, on, on, on the dustbin of history. I'm thinking about, you know, some of the things that were said during the election campaign, young voters saying, you know, old people shouldn't be allowed to vote, they're ruining our future. There's a kind of... There's a new yeah. tolerance which is very intolerant, if you know what I mean. Well, um... I hate to disagree with you, Mike, I, I, but I think actually something else is true. I think that there is a pretty toxic conversation that goes on amongst the political and media elite who delight in shouting each, at each other. And, you know, Twitter has given them a completely new megaphone. Mm. But for the most part, in most parts of this country, people are incredibly generous. They are very open. They want to like their neighbours. They want to try and get on with people irrespective of race or color. And I think one of the reasons that um, what we see as a sort of political revolution and all the surprises that take place, Brexit, the Tory landslide and all of that, is that the political and media classes are having a completely different conversation to one that's going, out, going on in the country. I mean, 
you know, in the last three or four weeks, you know, I, I belong to a very big family that's spread out across the country. My wife, similarly. So we spend a lot of time outside London and we go to Oxfordshire, we go to Essex, we go to the Midlands and so on. Out there in the last three, four weeks, people have been thinking about the pantomime. They've been thinking about the kids' school concert. They haven't been having these sort of terrible, toxic rows. This is something which, to be honest, we journalists, the politicians love because it gives us something to talk about and try to get people to notice us. But actually, this is a moderate country. And the problem that we have is actually not one about the country being divided, but the political and media elite being uh, divided and shouting at each other. And that's one of the reasons that people look at us askance and they think, who are these people? Why do they purport to represent us? Because, you know, we have differences. We don't like crime. We don't like people who seem unreasonable. But we're not shouting at each other all the time. Mm. No, I think you're absolutely right. Interestingly, though, people will look back, presumably, on 2019, and particularly the election result, and see that there was some kind of a reaction. It wasn't so much a youth quake as a kind of a working-class yeah. quake, in a way, where, you know, places where uh, Labour had been, you know, in charge of, of constituencies for decades suddenly went to the Tory party, at former mining yeah. communities in the northeast of England. Sort of unheard of. And interesting, I was just talking to John Rental from The Independent, I asked him to nominate his kind of person of the decade. And he said Gillian Duffy, which I thought was fascinating. He said, you know, if it hadn't been for Gillian Duffy, maybe none of this would have ever happened. Yeah, I think, I mean, John is a very... Uh, John is one of my favourite commentators. Yes. And he has great insight into these things. So um, I, th I think that's a really smart nomination. Uh, and it, I, it's smart for the reason he, get, he gives. But I, I'll give you another reason why it's smart. I mean, this woman just said two things... And it absolutely electrified the political sphere. Mm. Now, the interesting thing about it is that almost nobody outside of Westminster and the political and the, the, the journalistic tribe was surprised by what Gillian Duffy said, because almost everybody says that to everybody else in the supermarket yeah. and over the fence. Um, I mean, people have different views about you know, the extent and the pace of immigration and so on. But, you know, what she said was not exceptional. And it simply goes to my point that the people who occupy the airspace and the journalistic columns and so on spend a lot of time having an argument which is important to, to them but actually is not shared by most of the country. And uh, your point about the election results, I think it's a really interesting one, Mike. I mean, the constituencies that fell, what, what is the thing that, they, that binds them together? Almost all of them are places which had um, coal mill, uh, sorry, collieries, yeah. uh, steel mills, or they were basically company towns that had grown up around a particular industry. Mm. That industry has now died. Those people live in places which, frankly, they don't recognize any longer. You know, if you were in a Nottingham colliery, Nottinghamshire colliery now, you might have retired, but your kids are now working in Derby right. or Leicester or somewhere else. And the place where you live no longer really has an existence. The problem for Labour and my party is that we simply didn't notice what was happening in those places. We completely missed the feeling of abandonment that people had in those constituencies. And except for a few rather courageous MPs like Caroline Flint, we simply basically, every time those people said, 
pay attention to us. Mm. We said, oh, get with the program, you know, grow up. It's a modern world. Uh, listen to us and stop moaning. Right. Now, you know, they gave us a pretty strong message at the last election. And I think my party anyway has to listen to it. Well, I wonder whether it's a similar thing that happened in Scotland, you know, because I've worked up in Scotland yeah. for a few years and I saw yeah. the kind of the SNP wave as it took over local councils, as it then took over the Scottish Parliament and then eventually took over all, almost all of the Labour seats that were part of what Labour needed to ever make a government. And, and I don't think they're ever going to get them back in Scotland. And I wonder whether the same thing is happening in the north of England. Well, I think there's something really interesting about uh, that. Um, and it, it relates to this identity point. I, I used to work for a big retailer, which uh, has stores all over the country, including in Scotland. And I remember going to one of the big Scot Scottish stores and talking to the staff there, sitting in a room with 200 people. And I said to them, you know, what's this Scottish thing about? And they said, look, what you've got to understand is that People are identifying with being Scottish. That doesn't, and whether they're right wing, left wing, whatever it is, they're beginning to, they've, they've got an identity which is about being Scottish. So everything that we put in the store, we've got a tartanite, mm -hmm. they said. Right. And the point I'm making here is that what politics hasn't really grasped is that there's been a huge cultural change in the country where people are no longer identifying with a political tribe simply based on how much money they earn. They are identifying with other people based on thing, how do we want to live? How important is religion to us? How important is the place where we live to us and its traditions? And I think politics, frankly, is behind the people on this. You know, the mass of people have already sort of worked out what's going on and they're trying to work a way through this. The problem for politics is that it just hasn't grasped uh, what's going on and politicians are still desperately desperately trying to you know get a horse that has bolted back in the stable yes um, I think that's right. And also I wonder as well whether the, the sort of the, the, the centralization of, of Westminster politics and also the centralization of the media and the fact that now there's so little sort of local media anymore because local newspapers have kind of died out that all the people funneling through into Fleet Street and into broadcast media are basically coming from one place. And, and I mean, I saw, and I'm not picking on Robert Peston at all, but I saw his tweet this morning where he put out a picture of a sign in the country somewhere, mole control, in your area now, please call Bob. He says, is this an actual thing? Now, I'm sorry, you know, anyone who's been outside of London knows that moles are a massive problem in the country. I know this might sound trivial, but if Robert yeah, yeah. Peston doesn't know that, you know, what's he doing? Oh, dear. Uh, uh, Robert lives in the same area of North London that I do. Right. That's slightly, um, I mean, that, that is slightly characteristic, I, I have to say. Um, you're, you're completely right, by the way, about the issue of local journalism. You probably won't know this, but that's where I started my career right. um, in television, uh, working in regional journalism in London. Uh -huh. but nonetheless, we were focused on the region. And one of the things that, I, uh, that has made me despair over the last two or three years about journalism is the disappearance of local journalism. So, for example, if you take um, a situation like the awful tragedy at Grenfell, yeah. when that happened, the thing that really struck me was that it felt like a big surprise to everybody who was reporting it. Mm. Now, when I was in local journalism, um, I hosted a programme called the London Programme for 14 years. I remember it, yeah. 
we, we would have been all over the Grenfell campaign years before because it was, uh, you know, it was, it, it was a big local, it was a big local thing. The problem is that neither the BBC nor indeed any of the commercial stations really now does much in the way of local journalism. So that campaign carried on, had carried on for two, three years without anybody really reporting it. And the only point at which journalism got into it was after it was too late and the, you know, the awful tragedy had happened. I, I think you draw, you're drawing attention to an incredibly important aspect of not just what's important for the media, but what's important for our democracy. If our local papers don't exist, if our local radio stations aren't reporting on the things that matter in a particular place, then actually but people's voices don't get heard. Mm. And then it's no surprise, to be absolutely frank, and I, it won't surprise you to hear me say this, that's when people go to extremes. Yes, so I think that's right, because they feel as though... The only way I'll get heard. Yeah, they feel as though nobody's paying attention to them. I, mean, I remember having a very depressing conversation with somebody when I was working in America at the New York Times, um, and they didn't have anybody in Queens, covering Queens. And they, You're I said, kidding well, me. You've got three people in Johannesburg. Why haven't you got anyone in Queens? And he said, uh, we haven't got any readers in Queens. And I was like, well, I mean, that is the problem, isn't it? Me. Um, I mean, I, I, the, the reason I might put my reaction like uh, that is that um, my parents, nearly half a century ago, moved from here to... United States, mm. and they lived in Queens. So, actually, the bulk of my family—I have three sisters who live in Queens. So I know. Okay. I know that. <laughs> so you know the problem. It, and, and that—I mean—that is the biggest borough, most populous borough in New York. The New York Times didn't have a reporter there. No. Absolutely. But that's—I mean—in a way, that is my. You know, I get um, slagged off a lot for this, but that is my complaint against you know, the political and media elite, my own class, I'm part of it, that we are constantly ignoring the things that matter to ordinary people. And when they complain, what we do is we tell them, no, no, you, should be think you shouldn't be thinking about that. The things that you think are important, i.e. moles, are not important. L listen to us and care about the things that we care about. And then we are constantly surprised when they punch us in the face. Yes. I mean, and they seem to be, for good or ill, uh, believing that Boris Johnson cares about that stuff. It may, may be that he doesn't, but he's much better at convincing people that he is. Well, I think the thing about uh, Mr Johnson is that uh, he has... Um, you know, there's somebody once said, uh, since sincerity is the hardest thing to, to fake. Um, <laughs> I, I think Boris Johnson... Uh, has man whether it's real or not, he has managed to convey an authenticity. That is to say, he's not in the least bit embarrassed about who or what he is. So people, you know, uh, in um, two up, two downs in the north, who for whom Eton and Balliol and all of that are basically things that, if they've ever heard of them, belong to a completely different world. Right. They're not. They don't mind his background because. One of the things that I think is probably true about Boris Johnson that is quite clear is that he isn't a snob. You know, he doesn't, uh, he takes, pe he obviously takes people as they come. And I think that British people like that. They don't mind if you're posh or they don't really mind if you're not posh. Right. What they don't like are people who tell them what to do or people who look down on them or con condescend to them. And I think Mr. Johnson, 
and you know, I, I had lots of criticisms of him, but one of the things that he has managed to do successfully is to convey a persona which is very British. You know, if you were, if you were a Shakespearean scholar, you would say this is Sir John Falstaff, the sort of <laughs> fat old kind of beery um, mentor to yes. uh, Prince, Prince Henry, um, who leads him into naughtiness. Uh, Johnson is a very English type that we recognise. In the same way, by the way, coming back to your point about Scotland, Nicola Sturgeon is a very Scottish type of person. Mm. And whether you agree with her or don't agree with her, I think Scots feel that she is one of theirs, one of them. In fact, they have a, I think they have an expression for somebody like her, a wee nippy sweetie, because yes. she's such a recognisably Scottish type of person. Mm. And, and somehow, I, I don't know, I think somehow public life has got to get back to that, that those of us who are lucky enough to have a platform, whether, you know, on the radio or in journalism or in politics, have got to not just say we're listening to people, but we've got to get back into the same conversation as ordinary people are having and stop looking down at them or condescending to them and really answering their questions and the kinds of things that you were discussing yesterday. Well, this is what I've been doing, and it's been incredibly successful because people say to me, and this is not just me sort of bigging myself up, that, you know, you don't hear these kind of conversations very often on what they regard as mainstream media, on the BBC, on Channel 4, you know, on Sky. They don't talk about stuff like this properly, as you and I have just done. Yeah, well, I think that in our, in our profession, in journalism, one of the problems is that um, uh, it, it's, it's a fact that the, I think it's a social media foundation has uh, shown that um, one of the few professions which over the last decade or so has become more posh, i.e. more populated Mm. by people from independent schools and wealthy backgrounds, journalism and media is one of the few professions where that's true. And I think that's reflected in our output. And, uh, you know, people try and make this a, a sort of political argument is the BBC biased to the left and all that? I, I don't think that's the problem. I think the problem is that the preoccupations of people like us are not the preoccupations of the ordinary person. So, you know, going mm. back to the point about the election, I, I, mean, I suspect that most people during the election campaign paid about half an hour's attention to what was going on, whereas people like us were obsessed by it 24-7. And so the conversation we were having didn't really relate to the things that most ordinary people were thinking about at the time. Um, and we, the, the, the problem that we've got to get past in our heads is to stop saying that the problem is our listeners and viewers and readers and our constituents and recognise that to some extent the problem is us. Mm. Absolutely. Trevor, great to talk to you. Thank you so much. Trevor Phillips, uh, former head of the Equality and Human Rights Commission, talking an awful lot of sense, uh, as we often do here uh, on the Independent Republican, Mike Gray. I want to hear from you as well, 0344 499 1000, because as Trevor says, you know, not very many places are like this where you can hear common sense and where you can actually speak it as well and you can get your voice heard because we are very much the voice of the people here at Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.
Now, there's an awful lot of talk about Jeremy Corbyn and whether he should step aside. He's come out this morning with his New Year message, which has caused quite a bit of angst and anger amongst those people in the Labour Party who think that he should just step aside. Kevin Maguire is one of those people. He's the uh, quite influential political editor of the Daily Mirror, uh, and he has supported Jeremy Corbyn throughout the period of time that he's been leader. But even he has now had enough. He's fed up, and he says it's time for Jeremy Corbyn to step aside. We're hearing that Angela Rayner uh, is preparing herself to run as deputy leader uh, with Rebecca Long. Bailey in the hot seat. Apparently they used to be flatmates. What a ghastly thought that is. But anyway, uh, apparently those two are now going to be uh, sort of sitting side by side and trying to run the Labour Party between them. We shall see how that pans out. What we do know uh, is that an awful lot of people who wanted Brexit to happen voted the Tories in with a massive majority, uh, a bigger majority than even Boris Johnson or Dominic Cummings could have dreamed of. And one of the reasons, of course, that they voted for Brexit was because they wanted to have some kind of control over immigration in this country. And one of the things one of the planks, if you'll pardon the phrase, uh, of Boris Johnson's campaign in the election on December the 12th was in fact to make sure that immigration was stopped to a large extent and controlled to a much bigger extent by an Australian points-based system. However, this morning, Migration Watch UK uh, are saying that basically there is a problem with the points-based system. We're going to speak now to Alp Mehmet from uh, Migration Watch UK. He's the chairman to find out what his problem is with this proposed system. Alp, a very good morning to you and a happy new year. Uh, happy New Year to you, Mike. Thank you very um, much indeed. Now, I mean, for, forgive the rather long preamble there, but but the bare bones of, of what you appear to be saying uh, from Migration Watch's perspective is that, you know, this may not be all it's cracked up to be. Well, the problem is that we don't know what sort of points-based system it's going to be. Just saying it's going to be a points-based system and giving the impression that everything will be absolutely hunky-dory is not enough, frankly. Right. Um, what the Australian points-based system has, for example, is um, a cap. There's a cap is a, is a central element of that, uh, of the system in, in Australia. But we've already heard from the government that they don't like caps. Right. They're not going to have a cap. So that is a, a serious problem. We think that if you continue to bring in, allow in all the skills that have been coming in, the high skills that we've needed over the, on average, over the last 10 years, it's been around 50,000 a year from EU and non-EU. You can continue to do that and indeed allow some of the more special skills in and still bring numbers down so long as you've got a cap. And that's what concerns us, the fact that there isn't going to be a gap. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I suppose that you would say punctuated the Tory party manifesto and also the election campaign was it was a bit short on detail, generally speaking, wasn't it? There wasn't really any explanation of an awful lot of their policies. It was just very much a kind of a one-sentence, kind of one-fact story, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, well, well, we'll have a points-based system. But then there was all these stories about, well, what about, you know, whether people are earning less than £30,000, whether there's going to be different rules for people coming to work with the NHS, whether there's going to be different rules for skilled workers and unskilled workers. It's all a bit woolly to me, it seems. Well, you're absolutely right. And, and this, the matter of lowering the skill levels, at the moment, high-skilled people have to have the equivalent of a degree. Set. Yeah. What is being proposed is lowering that to A-level. What is also being considered is lowering the, the high uh, 30,000 a year threshold to something like 21,000. 
which is absurd, frankly, because that would expose anything up to 9 million jobs to competition from all over the world. People who are prepared to come and work for lower wages and in more difficult conditions than, frankly, we would expect our own people. The other thing is that our system really and what doesn't seem to be uh, um, proposed from the government, what we would like to see is a system that encourages training and producing our own, be it our own doctors and nurses or plumbers and electricians. Yeah. electricians. And that's the sort of thing that really we just don't know at the moment whether it's going to be included in, um, in, in the system that is going to come up. And are you having talks with anybody in the government about how they're sort of setting this up and exactly when it's going to kick in? Because one of the things that people always ask me uh, uh, is about the, the numbers of people coming over in boats from, from France, you know, by the dozen, by the hundred, in fact, I think, over the course of this year, uh, arriving in this country and then staying here. Because, I mean, obviously they are not subject to any kind of point system at all. They're just turning up. Yeah, and, and that, that is, to be fair, a, a separate issue. I, th I think that something like, well, over 1,800 at the last count um, have come in illegally, uh, arrived um, in boats from, from France. And that, what that does is, A, encourage uh, people to risk their lives. It um, gives the opportunity to uh, the traffickers to make a lot of money. But, but also, it, it attracts more people... If you don't send those who, um, and I'm not suggesting that we pick them up in midstream and then do nothing with them, just drop them back. Yeah, certainly treat people humanely and treat them decently. But those who have no right to be here should not, should not be allowed to stay. But all those, but all those people, uh, Alp, who are coming over in, in boats illegally are, have no right to be here. None of them have a right to be here. But what they do know is that once they land uh, on, on our shores, they will be looked after because we treat people decently. But you're going to have to find some other method, aren't you? Well, um, one method would be that having treated them decently and, uh, decently and <laughs> made them warm and given them something to eat, that they go back to where they came from. Yeah. That's what should happen. But by and large, it doesn't. Something like 120 have been sent back since um, the beginning of the year of those who have been coming in over the past year. And that, that's not good enough. I, I also think that talk of an amnesty that we have heard from the government and, and from the prime minister himself, that really is, is quite dangerous. And the first thing we should do is make clear that there's going to be no amnesty to those who are here illegally. And at the moment, there's something like 70,000 I mean, people coming in boats aside. Those who are here illegally, we have the highest group in Europe, something like 1.2 million people, up mm. to 1.2 million people. That's, that's crazy. And we really should be doing a great deal more to remove and send back those who have no right to be here and who have failed, um, whether it be uh, permission for asylum, whether they have failed to uh, um, get any sort of authority to remain here for whatever reason. Once that happens and they've gone through the process, the judicial process, 
that very often happens, then they must be returned. And that is an happening. But the problem, of course, for a lot of the people coming in this manner across the channel uh, at high risk to themselves, but also having paid quite a lot of money to, to human traffickers in many cases, is that they've originated in places like Iran and Iraq and possibly even Syria uh, or maybe even Africa. Um, but they've come through Europe and people can't understand why it is that they haven't somehow settled or been uh, sort of signed up, if you like, to the first European country they come into because we can't throw them back to France. We can't throw them back to Iran uh, or to Iraq. So what do we do with them? <laughs> well, you, you make a very good point. And, and it is one that the Home Office will often uh, make as well, that uh, despite their best efforts, no one will accept them back. Right. But very often they are coming. We know where they've come from, the last point uh, that they departed Europe from to get to the UK. We do know that. And that in itself should be enough for us to send them back. That was how we used to do it when I was an immigration officer many years ago. Uh, if people do have a right to uh, apply for asylum, but what they don't have a right for is to automatically be given asylum simply because they've asked for it. And that is where, at the moment, we're clearly far too lax. The, the number of removals, as they put it, has, has really fallen drastically over the last few years. And even those who want to go back voluntarily, uh, the numbers you'll find there have also fallen. And these are the sort of areas where, really, enforcement is something that we could do, be doing much more of uh, than we have in, in the recent past, certainly. The resources uh, may be lacking, well, for goodness sake, let's provide the resources that uh, are necessary. And, and let's not forget that something like three quarters of the people in this country think that illegal immigration is a serious problem. Yeah. And indeed, something like two thirds at least um, want us to remove, to maintain tight controls and to bring down uh, lower immigration and that is something that really the government should be taking very seriously at the moment okay Alp Mehmet thanks very much indeed chairman of migration watch UK basically saying that uh, the points-based system is not a cure-all the points-based system needs to be run in a particular way the points-based system may in fact not be the magic wand that everybody expects it to be however I want to hear from you this morning don't forget this is the last show of 2019 you can ring this show at any point between now and one o'clock and you can get on and you can talk to me about a great number of things we'll talk about immigration we'll also talk to Trevor Phillips coming up in the next hour. John Rental uh, is going to join us. He's the chief political commentator from The Independent with a look back on the political year and also uh, with a look forward to what 2020 is going to hold for Boris Johnson and the rest of us as well. 0344, a 499, 1000. It's New Year's Eve. A new year is coming. This is Talk Radio. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, how to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344-499-1000 is the number. John Rentals with us from The Independent. Um, and John, funnily enough, yesterday I thought, just to be different, rather than doing a roundup of the decade, I thought, let's do a roundup of 2009. And the difference in, you know, not just the political world, but just the yeah. world in general in 10 years has been remarkable. When you think back to those days where Gordon Brown was still the Prime Minister... He was the most unpopular Prime Minister ever. Yeah, incredible. And I think he still, I think he still holds that record. I think, I mean, Theresa May got pretty unpopular, but I think it's Gordon Brown is still... Yes. ...was still rock bottom. Well, I mean, at least Theresa May had an election, which I guess, you know, you might say that he didn't really have until he finally lost one. Yeah. Um, because people were so fed up. But, but, I mean, when you look back at the Labour Party... Uh, then, even even with the unpopularity of Gordon Brown, yeah. it was a very different beast, wasn't it? Well, it it was, and uh, we were all confidently expecting David Miliband to be uh, to be it, Gordon so Brown's successor. Right. Yes, and uh, then everything uh, everything went downhill from. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the other interesting on. thing that I'm reading about at the moment that, that the unions have still got a big part to play in whoever becomes the next leader of the Labour Party. And they're taking a long time. And Kevin Maguire this morning was tweeting, saying that, you know, it really is now time for Corbyn just to step aside and to do it immediately. Yeah. Um, but that's not going to hurry him up, is it? No, no. I mean, no, Cor Jeremy Corbyn will, will, will stay on. But no, yeah, the unions still have um, a remarkable grip on the process because mm. they still control part of the nomination process. Although, the, you know, in the end, the, the decision is taken by by the votes of, of party members, yeah. uh, including... You know, lay, uh, trade unionists who, who who sign up, but I mean that's not very many. Right. Um, so the real control is the nomination process, and mm. uh, you need you need a big union uh, on, your, on your side. And then McCluskey's going to be the kingmaker still, presumably. Well, he'll be a he'll be a kingmaker in in that yeah you know, he he will be able to nominate someone. Um, whereas you know if you don't have a big union on your side, and there's only there's only one or two of them now, um, you've got to get an awful lot of local. Uh, constituency parties to uh, right. to nominate you. And looking at the Tory parties, as I said just before the break there, I mean, Boris Johnson has got the ability now, if he wishes to, to pretty much do what he wants. But what could go wrong for him? Because <laughs> as you, as we were talking earlier this morning with uh, the Migration Watch people, you know, if he doesn't get to grips with the immigration problem, which I don't think he can, because to me it's a bit like the NHS and it doesn't really get solved quickly, if at all, um, 
he could have a problem with 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 the the, the next election on that. But I mean, he's got five years basically, hasn't he, yeah. to do what he wants? Well, I mean, the question is, can he maintain the discipline he's shown um, this year uh, in the party? Yeah, well, no, no, his own discipline. Okay. I mean, because as you, I mean, I think you're absolutely right that it, it's up to him to throw it all away mm. because he's got everything lying in front of him. Right. You know, he could be prime minister for the next ten years. He can he can be the prime minister of the of the decade yeah. of the 2020s um, if he doesn't uh, mess it up. Right. Because um, you know, I, I do think something happened to him. Um, you know, when when Michael Gove stabbed him in the front uh, uh, after the referendum. Yes. Uh, and his his leadership campaign just folded, mm. um, just, just like that, like a pack, yeah. pack of cards. Right. Um, I think something happened to him. He, he he suddenly got the got the discipline. He he, he realised he was going to have to work for uh, the leadership. He was going to have to, uh, you know, sort of, um, you know, that that's that silly stuff. Do you remember when after after the after the referendum campaign, he went off and played cricket. Yeah, um, he wasn't serious about about the top job. Right, uh, but he is serious about the top job now. Yeah, and the question is, is he serious about wanting to be prime minister for a long time, wanting to sort of mm. emulate his hero Winston Churchill? And is he able and... to keep the Tory party disciplined as well? Because that's been an important part, I think, for him getting to where he is. He's yes. managed to to sort of side the way at the people who perhaps didn't like him very much. Uh, he's got a whole new kind of uh, uh, tranche of, of MPs. We don't know what they're going to be like. But, but they the Tories, owe their position to him. Yeah, but the Tories do <coughs> seem to be more united now than they've ever been. Oh, absolutely. And and having chucked out the 21, mm. um, you know, although, you know, we journalists all love David Gork and uh, and Ken Clark and all the rest of them. Speak for yourself. You know. <laughs> I didn't love David they... Gork at all. <coughs> Well, I thought he was. I, I think he's magnificent. I thought he was the star of the of the general election really? campaign. Those campaign videos, yeah, uh, with his dad, I thought mm. were absolutely magnificent. I loved his anyway. kind of. You know, we're all out together. Uh, you know, fighting the big the big fight. And there was about five people sort of standing outside a <laughs> shop, and you're going to go. Nah, it's not quite working. But for me. the point is that by expelling that lot, I mean, I think uh, Boris Johnson did show that he had a bit of steel. Yeah, and there was a bit of uh, discipline. Uh, that he was going to impose on the sure. party, and that people who want to get on in the party are going to have to mind their p's yes. and q's, and the, you know all that stuff. You know, under under Theresa May, where pretty people were allowed to do pretty much yeah. what they wanted, including yeah. it was him. Sort of open warfare. You know, wasn't that's it? that's gone. And, yeah, really. You know, we've got, we're now back to normal politics, where a government has a majority and will maintain it by uh, by by. And what about Scotland? Whips. Does Scotland have a part to play here, or is he just going to keep ignoring Nicola Sturgeon's calls for a referendum? I think Nicola Sturgeon's in a very difficult position now because um, once we've left the European Union, um, the SNP's uh, argument for, a for, for another independence referendum is going to be um, we want independence, uh, we want to keep the pound, we want to keep the BBC and the Queen, and the Queen um, yeah. but we're going to apply to rejoin the mm. European Union. Right. And that's, a much, that's going to be much harder to Economically, to sell to it people. doesn't make any sense and I can't even see the EU being in favour of it, can you? Well, that's the question. Yeah. What is the EU's attitude to Scotland applying to rejoin yeah. um, uh, as an independent country? In my we sort do... of darker moments, I imagine a kind of Catalonia situation where well. where we start locking up people from the SNP, and, <laughs> and you know the, the special the special boat service goes up, and starts kind of cracking people on the head with batons. No, we and, don't, and, do, and we don't EU, do that. And the EU doesn't do anything about it because that's what's happening in Catalonia. Yeah, absolutely, and 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 all that does is uh, is inflame the, uh, the the flames of nationalism. Right. I mean, it's it's hard enough. Um, uh, not inflaming uh, Scottish nationalism yeah. by by you know actually treating them respectfully and and, yeah. and, and democratically. And I, mean, I, say, interest... I say them because I'm I'm part Scottish myself. Yeah, me too. But I mean, you know, the, you know I'm tr I'm saying we we treat the SNP 
with respect and give it all the yeah. sort of democratic uh, leeway it wants. And, you know, it lost a referendum and it now wants to have another one. But so I, was, we... I was up there at Christmas and there was a lot of people I spoke to who were not keen at all on Nicola Sturgeon, not no. keen on the way that the SNP is running the country and, in fact, are, are, are moving further away from the independence that they thought they wanted and would now rather stay with the, with the UK because they want to see how post-Brexit things are going to turn out. Well, I hope that's true, but um, the opinion polls are not at all uh, not no, at all comfortable the, from, no, my, from my point of view. I mean, you know, it, it, it was... It, they lost by 45%, yeah. and it's now 50-50 yeah. in the opinion polls. But, I mean, I do think... But I think that, once, that doesn't quite tell the whole story. No, I think once you focus people's attention on, yeah. the, difficult, on, on, the, on the economic cost mm. of, of uh, breaking up the union, I mean, Scotland would be poorer in the short term yeah. without a shadow of a doubt, and I don't think that point was really driven home and the thing that I got a lot of, uh, particularly on the West Coast uh, where I was staying, is that, you know, having seen uh, all the arguments about Northern Ireland and the border, they don't actually know what a border would look like no. in Scotland. That's uh, right. Would there be a hard border? I mean, would there not be a hard border? How would that all work? Well, exactly. Know? And there would be negotiations with, uh, the, with the rest of the UK... Um, just as as we've had negotiations mm. with the EU over the terms of our withdrawal, yeah. and then you know there'd be there'd be demands for a second or a third referendum in in Scotland's case, right. you know, on the terms of, on the terms of that deal. Absolutely yeah. right. Uh, what about Europe? Because that's going to be interesting as well. Because I was looking at something uh, the other week, which showed that all in all the countries of, of the European Union, the sort of left and centre left parties are losing votes hand over fist, and they're at all time lows in terms of their their ability to get votes from people. Um, and you'd have to yeah. say that without the UK, the, the European Union is a much weaker organisation, isn't it? It is. It's a disaster for the European Union. Mm. And it was interesting that um, you, you had Mr Timmermans was uh, sending us that love letter saying, yes. uh, you know, do come back any time. Mm. Uh, a bit late now. I mean, they should have thought of that. Well, when, they should have done. When they were negotiating with David Cameron to... to I, I to, think they genuinely expected it not to happen. Somehow. No, I think I think I think they do. They they thought it was going to happen, but they hadn't really come to terms with how mm. bad it how bad it is for the for the EU. I right. think that is absolutely true. Yeah, because financially they're going to be suffering uh, yeah. from the amounts of money. You know, it's also now that possible that, and as as the Brexit Party actually said that that basically we are now in sort of direct competition with the EU in terms of getting companies to come and base themselves here, yeah. in terms of all of all of the trade deals that are going to be done around the world. You know, it's the EU or it's the UK if you want to locate here. Yeah, well, I, th- I suspect we'll come off worst on, on, well, on that one in, in, in many respects. Yeah. But, you know, it's not, good, it's not good for the EU. I mean, there's, there's no question about mm. it. It's, I mean, it's a huge setback for the ideal of, uh, of a united Europe. Yes. I mean, you know, you do have... The whole of Europe, actually, in 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 a single market, you know, even Switzerland mm. and Norway and and and, and Iceland are yeah. all part all part of that single right. market. And now we're we're saying we don't want any of that, yeah. and we're we're going to be out of it. So, who's your kind of person of the decade? If there was my one person to be of the chosen? decade, I was asked this by James Max just before I came on this show, and I hadn't given any thought at all. <laughs> and I kind of went, uh, Donald Trump. Because Donald yeah. Trump has been a massive influence in the world. Yeah. Um, he's the, the president who's more, most likely probably to get another four years. Yeah. Um, but you may have somebody... At the uh, start of the decade, he was just an irritating uh, reality TV star. <laughs> um, now? And uh, now look at him. Now, my person of the decade, though, I mean, this is, this is a British perspective, is, is Gillian Duffy. OK. Because it was at the start, it was in 2010, yeah. in that election campaign, that she had a go at uh, Gordon Brown. That bigoted woman. Yeah, yeah. and uh, was, called a, was called a bigoted woman. Yeah. Because she, she was Rochdale, worried. Rochdale, wasn't it? Yes, it was Rochdale, and she was saying, you know, these Eastern Europeans, where are they flocking from? Right. Which is more of a statement than mm. a question. But, I mean, right. you know, that was... She was speaking for 
for a, uh, you know, a part of Britain which hadn't been heard. The people who took, have all put Boris Johnson in with a big well, majority, Exactly, it took the whole decade for Gillian Duffy yeah. uh, to be heard. Because, you know, finally it was the, the 52% in, in 2016 yeah. who, uh, you know, and the politicians wouldn't listen to that either. Uh, but, you know, by the end of the decade, I mean, the decade's going to end a month late. Yes. Because, you know, J January the 31st, 2020 is going to be when that when finally comes, comes to fruition. Fascinating. Well, it's been great uh, talking to you over the year. I'm sure we'll be doing the same next year because it ain't going away. <laughs> despite not. what anybody thinks, it'll be a new era. John Rensel, thank you very much indeed. We are Talk Radio. This is the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. It is New Year's Eve, the last show not only of 2019 for the Independent Republic, but the last show uh, of the decade, of course. What are we doing tonight? Uh, if you're doing it in Edinburgh, uh, you might want to be a bit careful because they seem to have got a bit sort of uh, uh, military police-like up there. Uh, and if you live in Edinburgh, as Colin just told us, uh, it is like some kind of police state that they've done uh, up there. I don't know what it's like in other parts of the country where you have various celebrations. I'll tell you what, looking out at the, uh, the view over the river from uh, News UK, today. It looks pretty foggy out there. I don't think you're going to be able to see any fireworks uh, if they set them off a little bit later on. But let's go to the phones. 0344 499 1000. I've been asking people as well uh, for their kind of men and women or people, binary individuals perhaps, of the decade. Uh, Rob says one person of the decade I think is still David Bowie. Still very much missed but still a huge influence. Let's talk to Daniel who's in Epsom. Hi Daniel. Good afternoon Chief. How you doing? Very well sir. Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year, I've got the old man flu. I'm, I'm struggling. Yeah, I've, I've got a bit of that. I've, I've, I'm actually deaf in one ear, bizarrely, which is a bit of an odd way to be trying to do a radio show. I, I would imagine so. And my, my person of a decade, Nigel Farage, by far... Got to be, isn't true, it? Our true statesman. He made it happen, and when it wasn't happening, he came back and made it happen again. I mean, what a man. But, but the story I'm ringing about was white, underprivileged, working-class boys in this country not getting the breaks that others do. Yeah. And I... I think what we're doing when we're looking at this story, we're not looking at the bigger picture, right? Tony Blair ruined higher education. I'm 42, and when I was leaving school, if you had a degree in anything from any university, you were almost guaranteed to get a good job, yeah. right? Now, over the past 25, 30 years, that's completely changed. Young, white, working-class men realise now, if you want to earn a pound note, you want to raise a family in a good way, you start your own business, maybe you're a carpet fitter, you know, what makes me laugh is they're talking about educational attainment. That just means the amount of people that went to university. Yes. So your, your average white working class bloke doesn't know that the capital of Mongolia is Ulaanbaatar. But when your boiler breaks down, Gary comes and fixes it. Yeah. When your car breaks down, Darren will come and fix it. If you, I've, just, I've just tweeted you the unemployment, um, unemployment stats by race from right. the .gov website today. And white, white Britons are the most employed. We're only 4%. Right. It's, there's virtually like, there's hardly any unemployment at all. So what I'm trying to say is one of the biggest facts is that everyone's bleeding heart on the left. Oh, my God, they're not educationally attained. But they, they might not be, but they're only more money than you, and they're working, right? And but, that, I mean, that's the other thing. I mean, what we talked about with Trevor Phillips is that, you know, there's no advantage being given to poor white working-class kids, particularly male children. They're just not getting anything. They're not getting anything, but they're still... They're still exceeding. They're still the, the least, racially anyway, they're still the, the most employed group in this country. And I put that down to the higher education system yeah. failing. There are people with degrees working in Costa. It doesn't mean the same as what it did 25, 30 years ago. So no. when we're having this big debate, we're only looking at it from a 2D point of view. We're not taking the whole big picture into account. Because if there's loads of lads that will set up on their own, go and work with their dads, somebody else, 
and eventually start their own business. That's what we do. Yeah. And I'm, no, know, I agree with you. I mean, I think far too many people have been thinking that the, the route to stardom for them in life is going to university. It's clearly not that anymore. And I said this to somebody the other day. There's no point in sending everybody there because then he kind of it defeats the object, doesn't it? Yeah, but what we, what we saw, what Tony Blair did, everyone will go to university. Yeah. Things can only get better. And all of a sudden now, 25 years later, a degree is not worth what it was. <laughs> no, it's not. Yeah? And also, very good rendition there of things can only get better, by the way. But the other thing, right, is that, you know, you can't promise everybody everything. We saw what Jeremy Corbyn did, and we saw what happened to him. Tony Blair tried to make out that he was doing it to improve the sort of the mental health of the nation. In actual fact, what he was doing was creating a whole series of businesses and colleges which are based purely on making money. He was, and I tell you what, that, that interview with Trevor Phillips earlier it was, was, was really, really insightful because the, I, I would say Brexit was forced by mass. Mass immigration is one of the big reasons that Brexit came about. And I think at the last six general elections, one of the top two topics on the doorstep were the economy and immigration. Yeah. And people have been saying it for so long, the first opportunity they had to kick you in the jack seat, which was the Brexit vote, they did. And you all sat back all surprised, all looking over your avocado and toast and your macchiatos, <laughs> and you were surprised that you got a kick up the backside. But they, this is not new. We've been telling you this for about 25, 30 years. Yeah. No, you're absolutely right. Absolutely right, Daniel. Thanks very much for your call. Have a great new year. Uh, we shall talk, I'm sure, uh, in the fullness of time come January. Let's go to Richard, uh, who's in Manchester. I think he's got a nomination for Man of the Decade. Hello, Richard. Well, I think you're the second man of the decade, Mike, because <laughs> you've put it. up with us. For, you've put up with us for three years, along with... But we haven't gone through what Nigel Farage has gone through. <clears throat> and I was listening to Catherine Bearder, the MEP, the other day, and uh, I felt obliged to ring up and defend Nigel because mm. I've seen her performances in the MEP, uh, in the union, and are absolutely abysmal. And she's a typical... Mona, like Joe Swinson, uh -huh. and, you know, it just sums up the whole party. However, Nigel Farage should, in my opinion, Mike, along with yourself and your station, be given the highest honour. This has been, to us old people, a war, and we have eventually won the war. And yep. you're, the guy on before me said, this is just something. He got us out. We were all happy. He went away, and then everybody came on at him and stabbed him in the back and they used all sorts of propaganda against him. Yeah. And I'll give you your due, and I always say this, you're always unbiased. You always come on and analyze. And if you don't like it, you tell them. If you like it, you tell them. Exactly. And really, that's the way... That's the way a station should be, Well, it's the only way to, to be. I mean, I don't, I don't understand these so-called journalists who can't do that because that's what we're supposed to do. And my highlight of the year was you getting hold of Alistair Campbell and giving him a good <laughs> rocket. Yeah. And I, oh, I absolutely loved it. He must hate me because when I get on and try to talk about him, I think they cut me off. <laughs> because that man, is, that man, along with Blair, has upset everybody in the world and they're still going at it. I know. And in an article in the Telegraph there day, the other day, Mike, about Blair going whilst uh, uh, May was in power and telling Barney A to stop it, stop it, stop it, and then asking for five billion, of, no, five million, yes. please, let me qualify that, um, for, for his foundation. For his foundation, I, yeah. I know. Staggering, isn't what it? Are these, what, are these, 
What do these people want, Mike? How much money do they want? How much do they want to upset the people? That I've been a socialist. I turned to conservative for the first time to vote for Boris. Do you know why? I have a feel in my heart that he will do for the poor and he will do for everybody. And I wish him all the best in the world. And the moaners and roaners tell you, Nigel Farage is one of the greatest prime ministers we will never have because of circumstances. But anybody who wants to accuse him, go on to the EU, go on to the website and go and have a look at what he's done for us over the last three years. He's taken more bullets than anybody else. And they say we were fighting a war, but not with bullets. We were fighting against the EU. Yeah. Mike, thank you. And their, and their secret agents who weren't so secret about it back here in the UK. Richard, a great call. Thank you very much indeed. Nigel Farage, uh, he said should be the man nominated as the man of the decade. Hard to argue with that, really, isn't it? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday, on Talk Radio via DAB online or via the Talk Radio app. And if you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us on 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Summer's just around the corner, so give your body the care it deserves with Osea's best-selling Andaria Algae Body Oil. Created by infusing Andaria seaweed in barrels of botanical oils, it leaves skin silky soft and glowing. Plus, it's clinically proven to improve elasticity and deeply moisturize without feeling greasy. It's safe, clean, vegan skincare. Get 10% off your first order at oseamalibu.com with code GLOW, plus free shipping on orders over $60. 